you've never gotten to be here before, um, if you are a regular attender or a member, I just appreciate this opportunity to get to come and preach the Word of God and talk about it. And we'll be diving into Psalm 110. We're continuing the series on the Royal Psalms. Uh, but as Eric was saying, man, it is such a blessing to get to be here and be in this community of King's Church. I know Catherine and I, recently married, just have loved getting to come here and serve together. Uh, it's such a gift to live missionally uh, with my wife and also just be encouraged by everyone here. Uh, it's been truly a joy getting to be married and be in the same city. We've been distanced and separate for a lot of our relationships, so it's awesome getting to just spend every day with my best friend. And one thing that we've kind of done as we uh, have some free time finally together is we like to watch some of the Marvel movies or TV shows. And Catherine recently shared this story with me, and I promise it's going to relate, but it's kind of funny. And it's about Tom Holland, and he's the actor who plays Spider-Man in the new movies. And before he started his first movie, he kind of jokingly told the Marvel Studios, he's like, hey, I, I need to go back to high school. I kind of forgot what it was like to be a high school student. And Marvel took him seriously. And so they sent him off undercover into a high school in New York. And so for a couple of days, they gave him this fake name and this fake ID, and he went, and the teachers didn't know who he was, the students didn't know who he was, and he was just kind of observing what was going on. But obviously, it's kind of weird for some guy to just plop randomly in your class. And so at one point, this girl who's sitting next to him in, in the back of a classroom says, why are you here? Like, who are you? And he, as we know, Tom Holland spoils everything. He tells her, he goes, well, actually, my secret is I'm Spider-Man. And she didn't believe him at all, because why would you believe a guy in your classroom saying that he's Spider-Man? It doesn't make any sense, right? But a couple days later, through the drama club, they reveal that Tom is this actor, and he's going to be playing Spider-Man. And of course, then, a few months, I'd assume so, or a year later, they see the movie where their old classmate is now Spider-Man on this big screen. And the people in this class went crazy and started telling everyone they could about this story, that they were in class with Spider-Man. They ended up telling so many people that they got on a news station and were telling this crazy story, um, what it was like to be in class with an actor. And so I, I think it would be pretty cool to get to be in class with Spider-Man. But I would wonder how you would react if someone tells you that they're Spider-Man. But how would you react if someone tells you that they are the Son of God? And that they're going to be killed, and they're going to be raised from the dead. Would you believe that person? And even, let's say, you've been thinking of someone who might be a king, who might come and help deliver you from a really hard situation. And this person doesn't look anything like a king. Would you believe that person? And that's kind of what we're going into Psalm 110 with. Because Jesus quotes Psalm 110 multiple times in the New Testament. And he uses it to say that he is indeed the Son of God, and he will be reigning and ruling after his death. He will be resurrected. And so the question is, is do people believe him? Do we believe him? And is what he says, is that true? So that's what we get to, to learn about in Psalm 110, and as we know, we know the answer, right? We'll dive into it, but we know that his word was true, that he is the Son of God. And when people saw that what he said about himself was true, they took this message and they spread it across the world. And oftentimes they're quoting Psalm 110 just like Jesus did. And so I didn't know this going into it, but Psalm 110 is the most quoted chapter from the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we just see that, that these claims of Jesus truly being the Son of God uh, changed the world. 
And they can, they can provide hope for the apostles in the midst of persecution. They provide hope for us today. And even Psalm 110, as we'll see, I think it provided hope for Jesus as he was heading to the cross. And that's the main idea that I want to get across today. The, the big idea for today in Psalm 110 is that it provides hope to Jesus as he headed to the cross. It provided hope to the apostles in the midst of persecution. And it can pr- provide hope to us believers today as we are, await Christ's return. Right before we get into this, uh, would you just pray with me over this passage? Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are who you say you are. God, that your word is more firm than the mountains, God. That it is truly the, the bedrock that we base our faith and our lives on. Lord, I pray that, that you would just help me open Psalm 110. God, would, would we learn from it? Would we get to see that you are our king who is reigning and risen? Lord, would it change our lives? Would we have expectant hope? as we await your return. Lord, open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All righty. Psalm 110. Let's go ahead and read it. It's just seven verses. It's not that long, uh, but there's a lot to it. So we'll go ahead and dive in. This is what it says. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power and holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. That psalm might not be what you were expecting when I said it's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. But there's a lot to it. And I think to better understand it, we really need to understand the context of when Jesus used this psalm. And by going into into Passion Week, the week leading to Jesus' death, I think we can start to see through the lens that Jesus was looking at this psalm and see how he was finding hope in this psalm by understanding when he is quoting it and when he is saying it. So if you would, we're going to go and start with verse 1 and spend a lot of time just with verse 1, understanding it because it gets quoted a lot. Uh, But if you would, go and turn with me into Matthew. We're going to spend a good bit of time just looking at when Jesus is quoting this. We'll start with Matthew 21. This is the triumphal entry uh, when, when Jesus is moving into Jerusalem. This is kicking off Passion Week or the week leading to his death, the crucifixion. So we'll be reading verses 8 through 11. And I want you to pay particular attention to how people are welcoming Jesus in. What are they saying about him? Who, who do they say he is? So in verse 8, this is what it says, the the disciples have gone, they've gotten this donkey, and they, they've, uh, Jesus is sitting on it now and riding into Jerusalem. And here's what people are doing. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem... 
the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. So, so who is Jesus in these passages? What, what are the people saying about him? They're calling him a prophet. He's been doing signs and wonders in their midst, right? And they're welcoming and heralding him in as this son of David. And what does that mean? So the, the Old Testament oftentimes talks about a promised king, or, or it's referred to as the Messiah, which means the anointed one. Another word for Messiah is Christ. So when we say Jesus Christ, we're talking about Jesus the Messiah, or the promised one. And we know from the Old Testament that he is supposed to be from the line of David. So he's a son of David. So people, when they're welcoming Jesus in, they're proclaiming him as the son of David. They're excited because they believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He's this promised king. And this king is supposed to come and reestablish the throne of Israel. And set up a, a land and, and a kingdom of peace. And so they know that. They're excited for that. And in a time when they are occupied by Rome... When there is Roman oppression and opposition, they are looking forward and hoping in a king to come deliver them from this Roman Empire. And while Jesus is the king, he's not the king that they were expecting. He didn't just come to establish one kingdom on earth to, to help defeat the Romans. He came to establish an eternal kingdom. And so what Jesus does in this next passage when he first quotes Psalm 110 is he elevates everyone's view of who this Messiah is. That he's not just someone from the line of David, but he is the king who will reign forever. So turn over just one chapter with me into Matthew 22. We'll be in verses 41 through 46. And so this is just a few days after Jesus has entered into, into Jerusalem. He's gone out, he's cleansed a temple, he's cursed a fig tree, he's been teaching in parables... And then he's been answering a lot of questions. And so after one set of questions where the Pharisees are trying to trip him up, um, try to find ways to accuse him, he turns and asks them a question. And so this is what he does in Matthew 22, verses 41 through 46. Here's what he says. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ, or this Messiah? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And Jesus responds and says to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, and here's Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from this day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. I'll be honest, I've read this passage a lot, and I've been confused a lot by this passage, because Jesus, he just leaves it with this question that no one gives an answer to. Either they're stumped, or they're silenced, and they don't want to say this answer. So I've kind of taken it and been like, okay, there's, Jesus is making a point. What point is he making? What point is he really making with Psalm 110? And so let's see what's going on here. So the first thing he does is he asks the Pharisees, hey, who is this Christ? And, and the Pharisees are the religious elite of the day. They know the answer. They know that the promised king, this promised Messiah, is the son of David. And so that's the answer they give him. And they might be answering him begrudgingly. You know, they might, they, they have seen him enter Jerusalem. And people welcome him as the son of David. And so they might be saying, you know, 
goodness, Jesus is trying to get us to admit that, yep, he's this Messiah, he's a king, he's going to come establish a throne, and we're going to lose religious authority. And they might not be happy about that. But Jesus, he has, he has something else in mind, right? He takes it a step farther. That he's not just a king, but he's the king. And he uses Psalm 110 with it. And so in here, the first Lord is in all caps in, when you look at Psalm 110. And that means it's referring to Yahweh. It's the great I am. It's the God who revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. And then it's the God who, who rescued his people out of, out of Egypt. And, and he gave them the law and he established them as his people. And he was their God. It is, is God Almighty. And he is speaking. And he's speaking to this Messiah. And he's saying, I will raise you up and seat you at my right hand. This place of, of power and honor. And that's where he's putting him, and then he's going to go out and fight for him. And here, David refers to this Messiah as my Lord. And Jesus' big question is, why does he do that? Because David is, is the greatest king of Israel, right? That he is a man after God's own heart. He really helped establish this nation. And so why would he ever refer to one of his descendants as my Lord? Right? He talks about Solomon, his son. He might talk about his grandsons or his descendants, why would he call a descendant of his or someone from the line of David his Lord? And the only answer I have for that is that David has to trust the promises of God. That in 2 Samuel 7, when, when God through Nathan the prophet promises to establish his throne forever, David knows that that's not him and it's not his son. Because he's going to die, his son's going to die, and people after him are all going to die. So there must come one greater than he who can reign on this throne forever. And that king, the eternal king, is whom Jesus refers to as my Lord. And so with that statement, Jesus silences the Pharisees or stumps them one or the other. They might not know the answer or they may know the answer and not want to admit that yes, this Messiah is greater than David. And in fact, he is on the level of God. Because for God to bring someone up to his level is saying that he's kind of equating himself with God. So Jesus is kind of implying that this Messiah is greater and this Messiah is like God. And we'll see in just another, another chapter in a little bit, same in Passion Week, he quotes Psalm 110 again and he outright says that he is the Son of God. So turn over just a couple more chapters to Matthew 26. And we'll be in verses 62 through 66. And so this is at the very end of Passion Week. Uh, Jesus has, has been captured in the Garden of Gethsemane. He has been taken in front of the council of the high priest. And people are trying to accuse him. They're trying to find reason to, to put him to death. To, to stop this revolution that this Jesus is starting. And so people are saying multiple things about him. And nothing is sticking. They can't find a reason to put Jesus to death. And so finally, the high priest just addresses Jesus. And this is what he says. Matthew 26, picking up in verse 62. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify about you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you. By the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, 
the Son of God. He's saying, you've been claiming that this Christ, the Messiah, is the Son of God. Is that true? And here is Jesus' response. He combines references from Daniel and Psalm 110 in his answer. And he says, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered him, He deserves death. And I want to pause and think about how crazy of a thing Jesus just said. Right? The Pharisees, the high priest just asked him, are you the son of God? And for him to say, yes, he knows the law, and he knows for a man to claim to be God, he deserves death. So Jesus says, yes, I'm the son of God, you're going to kill me. But from now on, you will see the son of man, and this is a words from Daniel 7, it's a prophecy. And the Son of Man has this imagery of someone who is going to come and reign eternally over everything. That's who the Son of Man is. And he says, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, the right hand of God. And so I can't imagine what the Pharisees are thinking. Like, what are you talking about? We're going to kill you. How are you going to be reigning? But they crucify him. With, with his statement from Psalm 110.1, claiming to be God, they convict him of blasphemy, and they put him to death with crucifixion. And so this is the context when Jesus is quoting Psalm 110. When he is sealing his fate to go to the cross, he is affirming that, yes, I am the Son of God, and he's quoting Scripture. And I think he is also looking, he knows the rest of Psalm 110, and he is looking at it and seeing their promises that God the Father is making to him through this chapter. So with this lens, with thinking about Jesus using Psalm 110 to say that he is the Son of God and holding on to these promises as he is approaching the cross, let's now look at Psalm 110 and look at every verse and see the promises that Jesus gets to claim and have hope in as he is approaching crucifixion. Verse 1, we've just talked about it a lot, but I think God has hope or Jesus has hope that God will raise him and establish him as king. And Jesus can trust this promise because God the Father has proven to be true to his word. And so in verse 2, I think we see that, that Jesus has hope in the faithfulness of his Father. And how we see that is in with some of the wording here. So verse 2 if you still are in Psalm 110, it says, The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. So this language of the scepter points all the way back to Genesis 49, when, when uh, Jacob is blessing his sons. And he gets to the tribe of Judah, and this is what he has to say to his son Judah. He says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of all peoples. So, so how can Jesus claim hope in the faithfulness of God through, through this prophecy, really, when, when Jacob is blessing his son? is because J David, excuse me, David is of the tribe of Judah. 
And then Jesus is a son of David. So Jesus, the one who will be ruling and reigning, is all the way from the tribe of Judah. And so we can see from thousands of years before Christ was on the earth that God has been good on his promises. So I think Jesus finds hope in the faithfulness of his father. In verse 3, not only does, does Jesus get to hope in, in God, he also gets to hope in a reward. And his reward is, is a people who joyfully submit to him. Through his death, through his sacrifice, there's an opportunity for people to come willingly to him. Often in the, the Old Testament, it talks about the Israelites, right? They're a, a stiff-necked and stubborn people. They anger God. And oftentimes, people have to intercede for these people because they are not obedient. But we have those beautiful promises in the Old Testament where God has promised to remove their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh and impart on them His Spirit so that they can then love to do and, and enjoy to do the law. And then people will come and willingly subject themselves to the rule of Jesus. So I think Jesus has hope in a people who are going to be his possession um, and kind of his prize as he's going through this crucifixion. Moving on to, to verse 4, and we'll spend more time on this in a little bit. But verse 4, it says that the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And again, we'll talk about Melchizedek in a minute. But I think Jesus just has hope in the unchanging word of God. Right? That it says that the Lord, again, all caps, Yahweh, he has sworn and he will not change his mind. Our God's word is sure. By his word he has established the world, right? He has spoken things into existence. And what he says, that is the way things are. And so, so Jesus claiming to, to raise his son, to establish him, to make him a priest forever. Uh, his word is unchanging. I think Jesus has hope in that, in the surety of his father's word. In verse 5 and 6, I think Jesus, he sees hope and victory. In these verses, again, they say, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Christ's kingdom that he's coming to establish, it's not going to have boundaries. It's going to be worldwide. He, he will have victory over every king, over every nation. He will rule all. And so there's promised victory. And after this promised victory, I think there's promised eternal rest. And we see that in verse 7. Let me read it. It says, He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. And there, there's different debates and interpretations about what this imagery means. But I really think it's this, it's this idea that once he has gone out and conquered the world, he can be refreshed by the brook, right? Drinking water, being refreshed by that, and then lifting up his head and looking on into his eternal kingdom. And so he has hope and rest once his kingdom is established. So there's a lot of hope that Jesus can claim in Psalm 110. But hope in and of itself isn't enough. Right? I kind of hope to be a millionaire by tomorrow. That would be awesome. But it's really important of, of what you place your hope on or in. And so Jesus is committing his soul. He is putting all of his hope and his trust 
in God Almighty, the Lord, Yahweh, the great I am. And so the question, as Christ is going to the cross, is, is his hope well-founded? Right? Is, as the Pharisees, they're thinking, this is crazy, we're going to put him to death and stop this revolution. Is his hope well-founded saying, no, you won't, because from now on you'll see me reigning at the right hand of the throne of God? Is that hope well-warranted? And I'm not going to give the answer. I'm going to let Paul say this. And we've studied it already this year. It's in Ephesians 1. It is a beautiful passage. There are words straight from Psalm 110.1 in it. So it's Ephesians 1, verses 17 through 23. And, and Paul, is he's praying over the Ephesians. Would, he, would we and the Ephesians know who God is and what he has done for them? And this is what God has done. And this is his prayer. So pick up with me in Ephesians 1, verse 17 through 23, and let's see if Jesus' hope was well-founded in God the Father. He says, That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you are called, What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his, this is God the Father, the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ, this Messiah, this promised king, the son of David. This is how he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So brothers and sisters, Christ's hope was well founded in God the Father. Because we know from this passage and from what what happened that God raised his son from the dead. And Christ is now seated at the right hand of God Almighty and he is reigning. What hope do we have? Christ's hope was well founded and we see that what Jesus was claiming about himself to be the son of God was proven true by his resurrection. It all hinges on the resurrection, and God did not let us down. He was true to his word. He raised his son to life, and so his hope is sure. And so Christ's hope in Psalm 110 was well-founded, but we'll see from this then the apostles' hope was well-founded because they were following Jesus. They were committing their lives to him, and their leader was put to death. But then they have witnessed him raised to life. And, and with boldness, they go out in the midst of persecution and spread this message abroad, oftentimes quoting Psalm 110 to prove who Jesus is. And, and one of my favorite times when this happens is in Peter's first sermon. It's at Pentecost. Um, it's in Acts 2. If you want to turn there with me, we'll read this sermon really quick. Because what Peter's doing here is he's building this case for who Jesus is, and he's proving it to people. What had just happened is the Holy Spirit had had descended upon people and tongues of fire appeared above their heads and they start speaking in tongues. And people who see this going on think they are crazy. They think they're drunk at like nine in the morning. 
And Jesus stands, or well, sorry, not Jesus. Peter stands up, and he's emboldened by the Spirit, and he gives an incredible sermon, which I would advise just go read the whole thing. It's really long, but it's amazing. And he's building a case for who this Christ is. And we're really going to be reading uh, verses 32 through 39. But before it, he starts talking about who this Jesus is. He keeps using the word this Jesus. And so he says, it's this, you know, this Jesus that you knew from Nazareth, or from Galilee, from Nazareth, excuse me. This Jesus, he, he performed mighty wonders before you. This Jesus who, you, who was delivered up according to the scriptures, according to God's plan. This Jesus who was put to death. This Jesus he was raised from the dead. And then he uses Psalm 110 to say who this Jesus is. So pick up with me in verse 32 of Acts 2. And listen to the conclusion of who this Jesus is. Peter says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured this Spirit that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend. David died, right? David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, Here's Psalm 110.1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. So, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. And so he's, he's using Psalm 110 to say that this Jesus who you might have grown up with, you might have known him from Galilee, from Nazareth, sorry. This Jesus truly is the Son of God. He has fulfilled promises that he is the Son of David, but he is the Son of God. And here's people's response. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is made to you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So as, as Peter is saying that this message is for everyone, this message is also for us. That the reason that Jesus had to come and die, why did he need to come? Why did we need a promised Messiah? It was because we were all dead in our sin. We have all done something wrong, right? We have we have not glorified God or we've been prideful and sought glory for ourselves. And because of that, we are deserving of God's wrath and punishment. And there is nothing that we can do. If we're dead in our sin, we can't do anything to try to be good enough to get back into the perfection and holiness of God. But what God did is he had a plan and great foresight. And he sent his son of the tribe of Judah, of the line of David, to come live this perfect life that we couldn't. And he was killed and crucified and buried. But three days later, as we just read, God raised him from the dead. And with that, he has defeated sin and death, and he is now reigning. And our response to that, how we accept Christ, if you have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, is really simple. Is you believe in who he is. And first, you confess that you have sinned. And you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the King, that he came down to live this perfect life and was buried and raised again. 
And then you submit your life to Jesus as, as your Lord and King and live in obedience to Him. And if you've never done that, maybe you've heard this message, or maybe this is the first time you've ever heard it, I pray that you don't wait any longer, that you give your life to Christ. And if you want to do that, if you want to learn how you can believe in Jesus and have your sins forgiven, please come talk to someone after this sermon. We'd love to walk through that with you. And if you do that, then like these apostles, we have great hope in our risen King. In the midst of, of a hard life or even persecution, and in, in the instance of the first martyr of Stephen, it's in Acts 7. He also gives a great speech, and at the end of it, his last words before he is dragged out of the city and stoned to death, listen to Stephen's words. It's Acts 7, 56. And he, Stephen, says, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That's, that sounds just like what Jesus said would happen in Matthew before the high priest, right? That you would see this from now on. And it is proven true. And Stephen sees it. And the apostles have great hope even in the midst of persecution. And we too believers as today, we have hope in Jesus. And so this last thing, I want to see in Psalm 110 again, the hope that we believers today get to have in Jesus because he has been raised from the dead. As we know, in verse 1, we've been, we've been reading this a lot, but we have hope that our King reigns, that He is alive and He has been risen. And then two, that th this King, His kingdom is unconquerable. It is undefeatable. It will never be conquered. And we see that in verse 2, in the, the back half where uh, God says, Rule in the midst of your enemies, that even today where there is still sin, there is still death, there is still wrongdoing. Jesus reigns. He is over all. Though Satan is the prince of this world, Jesus is ultimately in control. And he is reigning and his kingdom is unconquerable. And two, our king is eternal. He will never tire, grow weary. The, the back half of verse 3 is also has interesting imagery. But it says that from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. And there's different ideas of what this might mean, but I really think that it's saying that like, like a, a young person um, has, has a lot of energy and vigor, Jesus too will, will have this as he's looking to reign in his kingdom. That he's never going to tire and grow weary, but that he will carry us and lead us for all of eternity. And he's not just our leader, he's not just our Lord, he's also our priest. And that's in verse 4, that while we have a king who leads us and protects us, we have a priest who cares for our spiritual needs. And he represents God to us, and he represents us before God and intercedes for us. And there's this, this idea of, of the order of Melchizedek. Um, and just a, a quick summary of that. Melchizedek was someone in the Old Testament who was both a king and a priest. And so one way that Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek is that he holds both offices, that he is a king and he's a priest. Um, the author of Hebrews picks up a lot on Melchizedek and spends a lot of chapters talking about who he is and why Jesus being of the order of Melchizedek means that he is better and he is superior. Um, all of Hebrews is talking about how Christ is better than angels and Moses and the law. And then he is saying he's better than the Levitical priesthood. Um, and, and he's of the order of Melchizedek because the Levites, their office as, as priest had to be filled every time the high priest died. But our king, our priest, will, will be the high priest forever. And his sacrifice 
um, was superior to all their sacrifices. Um, one verse, Hebrews 10, talking about Christ's sacrifice being greater, that also references Psalm 110 says this, um, talking about the Levitical priest. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So there's Psalm 110 popping up again. Um, and our, our king, our priest, he will be reigning over all. Verses 5 and 6, it uses really strong language that, that Christ is going to be shattering kings, filling the earth with corpses. And I think we do need to be reminded that, yes, our God is a God of love, but our God is also a God of justice and wrath. And that's a praiseworthy quality of our God. Because our king, who is reigning forever, is not going to be a tyrant. There won't be injustice. There won't be crime. There won't uh, be oppression. But there will be justice and righteousness in his kingdom. And two, in his kingdom, we have eternal joy and satisfaction to look forward to. As Christ looks to, lifts his head and looks to this eternal kingdom, we also get to look to this time when our king will return. And as Revelation 21 says, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. And this is the hope that we get to have because of our risen king who is reigning. And so leaving today with application, I hope that, that all of us can find hope in our risen and reigning king. In just a minute, Eric's going to lead us in song, and we get to praise our king who is above all and who has been risen from the dead. And also I want to ask, and maybe think about this throughout this week, is are we living in obedience to our King? If Jesus is truly the Lord of your life, does your life look like you were once submitted to His rule? Maybe there are things in, life, in our lives that we need to surrender to Him. And finally, would we just pray towards and live missionally in preparation for Christ's return? We are longing for Christ to come back. And so let's spend time this week and in our lives just praying and asking the Lord to return and then living towards that end, would we go out and share the gospel so that all peoples might hear of his good news? So that's the hope that Christ had, that apostles had, and that we can have in Psalm 110. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, I thank you so much for who you are. Lord, for um, coming and sacrificing your life and being the ultimate sacrifice for us. But we also praise you, God, that you are alive, that you have been risen from the dead, and you are now reigning. And Lord, we ask, would you no longer tarry, Lord, would you come and bring your kingdom here to earth? Lord, we await you, and we long for that day. Would we go out and live missionally this week? In your name we pray. Amen.